Hello, everybody, and welcome back to ET After Dark after a very, very, very long break. Um, <laughs> as always, I'm Jesse with Chrissy here today. And Chrissy, who's our guest? So, hi, everybody. We're here. We're joined by Claire, or better known as at Macro Targeting, infamously known for her iconic Simpsons memes. How are you, Claire? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. We're happy you're here. Um, so first and foremost, let's dive right into like the biggest question that everybody has. And it's how do you have such an abundance of Sim Simpsons memes? Um, so there's like a website and it's called Frankiac and they have catalogs for like most of the early seasons, I think through 13, all of the screenshots and the accompanying screenplays. So you just literally search for the quote that you want and you find it. But the thing is like, you have to know what you're looking for. The fact that you've like memorized already, like you know that there's a quote for it. It's just like impressive in itself. I mean, it's like an encyclopedic knowledge. I I don't know. I was <laughs> I was traveling with my boyfriend like a, a while back, I guess, and there was a Simpsons marathon on, and I would just like walk into the room and I would look at the episode and I would tell him which one it is after ten seconds, and then after like. After I did that like twice or three times, he just started yelling at me to stop. Wow, how rude of him. He doesn't understand the art, I guess. I'm underappreciated in my time. How many times have you watched The Simpsons like through? Like all the way through? Um, yeah. I couldn't tell you, but since like, especially since Disney Plus ha uh, like The Simpsons and launched, I just watch it going to bed um I'll just pick which episode you know feels most comfy and sleepy to me and I just close my eyes and I picture it and that's like my relaxing bedtime activity I used to do that future with Futurama but uh now it's just with the Simpsons there's like a whole thing I remember whenever um Disney Plus first came out where it was like the Simpsons it was like half of the screen was like cut off or something and there was like some big like outrage about that was that like a thing for you ever Okay, so that's a, mm, a, that's like a debate amongst experts and like super fans, because if you all will think back to like the old tube TVs, uh, they were a different resolution than what we use now. So like the old tube TVs broadcasts in three by four, and now we receive picture in 16 by nine. Uh, and so like, the old episodes are in three by four. So in order to fit them onto 16 by nine, you're cutting off like some of the picture. Okay. All right. As somebody who doesn't watch enough TV to understand, I'm just going to take your word for it. It's like, it's like cropping an image in from a like more square rectangle to a thinner rectangle. I know there's a pretty yeah. intense debate about like what seasons of the Simpsons are like the best, like what, what, in your opinion, is, like, the golden age of The Simpsons? So I have, like, sort of a minority opinion on this. A lot of experts will tell you that the golden age of The Simpsons ends in season 13 with The Prince and the Popper. That's the episode where you find out that Seymour Skinner is actually, like, some random guy. And it's not a very good episode at all. Uh, some people tell you it ends as early as season nine or season seven. But I honestly think like the, the golden age for me cuts off at about 15. But there's still super quality episodes like all the way through. There's just fewer. What season are they on right now? 
I think they're on 31 or 32, maybe 33. Oh, yeah, so it got old a long time ago, huh? <laughs> um, I mean, there's still really good episodes. I used to be kind of a purist and think, oh, no, I'm not going to watch anything after like 20. But there are some like episodes that I missed when I stopped watching The Simpsons on primetime that are really solid, honestly. They're not like the classic Simpsons, but they have their merit. Wow, you learn something new every day. I didn't know it was like still going. Like, I had no clue. I think it's like the longest running, um, maybe primetime TV show or like animated. It's definitely the longest running animated television show in history. Oh, wow. I had no clue. Um, all right. So shifting more onto a politics sort of thing, since we know our viewers are more, you know, politics nerds. Um, I know that you've done quite like a few things, um, you know, through the past years, but I really, really want to talk about like field organizing because I feel like that's something that we just don't talk about enough on election Twitter. Um, so let's chat field organizing. Let's chat. What, what, um, what was your experience like being a field organizer? And is that how you started out in politics? Yeah, that's how I started out. Um, it was during the sort of incarnation of like the transition from Obama for America to organizing for America, which was the sort of enduring campaign apparatus. I, I was an FO, first an intern and then an FO. And I mean, I tell people that like, I studied math in my undergraduate, but I was really educated at the door and I think like my, the cycle that I did in 2016 as a regional, especially, but also in 2012 um, and 2014, that was like an extremely transformative way, uh, like an extremely transformative experience in how I view politics. And, you know, speaking to voters is like how you understand how they think on a micro level. Right, right. I definitely agree. Um, so what would you say is like the one of like the main skills that you've taken away from that from organizing honestly it's understanding like the minds and I guess hearts of the average voter and how they think um but it's also understanding the realities of how a campaign works I mean I think there's a lot of punditry that happens that totally ignores you know what a campaign apparatus is how it operates where the decisions are made uh, and it's there's just so many things that you don't know about right right um I remember like back um like during the election uh, we were like talking about this um how the lack of canvassing really probably hurt Democrats last year um what what are your thoughts on that you know I think honestly it you know in the early pandemic especially canvassing might have been untenable uh, and you know someone should uh, research this that has the time to make graphs but I think you know you saw the Biden campaign which is a large national organization it's like it's like Bank of America you know like that's that's the scale of a national campaign uh, you saw like their campaign apparatus being able to transition to a pandemic environment and you know move field to digital and have the tools and like have the experience already on board to transition that campaign apparatus from a you know traditional boots on the ground type thing to a you know more digital oriented like type of voter outreach 
But I think smaller campaigns, and you know, maybe part of the reason why Democrats got killed down ballot, they don't necessarily have the tools or the experience like at their fingertips to make that switch to a pandemic election. And I mean, Republicans were just chugging along as normal. They were knocking doors, you know? Uh, so that field margin just kind of ebbs away, like in each like, in, you know, each tier down the ballot. And then at the same time, field becomes more and more important, like the further down the ballot you go. I mean, you can win a state ledge seat or like a county commissioner's seat on field alone, honestly. Yeah, definitely. Um, I really share that sentiment because, I mean, like you said, like Republicans were still going, they were going strong. They were not stopping. And so that really killed us, especially in places like, I know everybody on election Twitter loves to talk about the Valley, especially in places like the Valley, whenever you're not reaching voters where they are. Um, I think that really, really killed us. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing your insight on that. I definitely, yeah, I think that's something that like everybody was just talking about after November and it was like, why didn't y'all bring this up before? <laughs> <laughs> like when well, we could I mean, have done something. <laughs> I mean, it takes time to reflect too and you can't build like a digital apparatus overnight. It requires having, you know, the, the data and like, you know, decent like metadata for all of these voters. Um, so like when that stuff isn't in place and you know what we're relying on is basically their address and I hope it's right and they haven't changed it uh, and their name match uh, when you like load those into an ad tool then you're only gonna reach like a certain slice of people. Right, right. But I, I am like looking back now, I'm just really grateful that you know, Georgia, both Georgia campaigns ended up canvassing, um, even though we did it in November. Um, I obviously, we saw the turnout there. And so I think that it was, it was really helpful for us um, to see where we went wrong in November. And I hope that more state parties fix it next time. Yeah, I would really like to see, you know, state parties kind of focus on capacity building, which is extremely important for creating, like, you know, winning races down ballot or building a bench period. Um, you don't get from Georgia 10 years ago to Georgia now without, you know, building a, like a statewide infrastructure. I think it was you that made this point um, a while back that, you know, Democrats uh, come around every four, every two, every four years, knock on your door, ask for your vote. And you said that we should be doing more year-round organizing on like local issues. Was that you? It sounds like something I'd say. Um, <laughs> because like organizing shouldn't happen, you know, just during GOTV, it shouldn't happen when there's a campaign apparatus in place. Like when I talk about infrastructure building and capacity building, I mean, you know, having those tools and the people who knows how, know how to use them on the ground. Uh, and like, you know, connecting and building the brand of the local democratic party on like a state, a county or a city level. And the way you organize year round when there's not an election is like organizing around community issues. And those get people engaged because like they can look at something substantial, like something, you know, something they can get their hands on or see or drive past every day and say, oh my God, look, I did that. And if 
you know, people think, oh, well, that's not effective, then I don't think you've ever seen like a really, really yimby condo association go up against a real estate developer. Like the power of people organizing around very specific, you know, local issues that connect with them is extremely important, but you have to have the people who are empowered and trained and have the tools to connect with people. Right. Yeah. That's something that sparked a lot of controversy. I know, well, I know, especially in Texas, probably everywhere else too, where, um, you know, after the general election, they fire all their staff and it's like, they keep like their senior staff and that's it. And they don't have anybody on the ground organizing for, you know, like, like in Austin, we'll have a, we'll have a election in May for, you know, propositions. And like, one of them is going to ban homeless camping and like, we have nobody from the state party organizing on the ground for that. And so, um, yeah, have felt a lot of that outrage here from local organizers. Even people who ran this last cycle are, I think everybody's just sort of pissed. So. Yep. I mean, I'd like, unfortunately, sometimes like that's part of the reality where you operate as somewhat of a skeleton crew. Uh, throughout the sort of like off years, you go into a bit of a slumber, but it shouldn't be an actual like slumber slumber. <laughs> I mean, it. I think it would be important to empower county lead, like county party chairs and even a subset of county party chairs, whether you call them precincts or ward or re like whatever, uh, to take those like issues into their own hands. And that would be especially important for those locations that aren't necessarily Austin, you know, that are kind of like way out there that only people who are doing, you know, party volunteer work essentially, uh, are you know empowered to do right exactly all right so thank you for enlightening us with your organizing um knowledge now I kind of want to hear more about like what you do now if you can tell us um I can't really you know go into specifics about clients but I work for mm -hmm. a wonderful boutique polling firm called Brilliant Corners uh we I don't you might have seen Cornell Belcher on MSNBC. He's the principal of the firm. Uh, so we handle, you know, democratic polling. Oh, polling is a fun topic, huh? <laughs> um, yeah, we all know how much organizers love polls. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, so as an internal pollster, like, honestly, the least important figure in a, especially a baseline poll is the horse race. Like, it's interesting and stuff, but that change over time is extremely important. But like teasing out voters' issues and like which voters respond to certain issues and, you know, sort of like the under the hood stuff that only appears in the cross tabs is what makes internal polling extremely valuable because it's how you decide to spend. Right. And For it's sure. not like what a lot of people that are like not extremely involved look at. It's just like, you know, we see the, you know, general numbers and it's like, well, and I'm guilty of that too. Cause I, I'm not really a numbers person. I'm like, okay, this looks good. Let me go knock on more doors. And you know, that's how everybody should look at polls. I mean, like mm, acknowledge and carry on. Like even if you're 10, like 10 points ahead, you should run like you're 10 points behind. If you're 10 points behind, you should, or you should run like you're 20 points behind. Yeah, definitely. Jesse, you've been what wanting is, to what, say something. 
Um, what are some misconceptions that you see about polling that you've uh, seen on Twitter that you would like to debunk? Um, so margin of error is extremely important and why you should take things with a grain of salt. I think the misconception that I see the most is comparative margin of error. It's when you have like a bunch of undecideds, especially, or a multi-way race. Uh, so for example, Chrissy, you and I are running in the Democratic primary for governor of Texas. Uh, it, it's going to be a great, you know, general either way, honestly. But <laughs> they put a poll in the field and, you know, Chrissy's great, great. And people love her more, honestly. So she comes out at 36%. A bunch of goobs are like, okay, I think I'm going to vote for Claire because they like the double con they like the double consonant sounds. So I say, like, I come out in this poll at 30%, um, which means we have 66% of the electorate who claims to have made a decision, uh, meaning that 34% is still undecided. If the poll is they go N equals 400, which means we talk to 400 people, and the margin of error is around like, I don't know, it could be five points, whatever. Uh, let's say, let's say for the sake of comparison, it's it's six. Uh, then that means that Chrissy is up well without well well outside the margin of error if you're on election Twitter. In reality, when we only have 66% of people who have responded to the poll, then we're only talking about 66% of our entire sample. So the margin of error for the people who have responded is higher, like relative to the number of undecideds that we have. And it increases exponentially with the number of undecideds that you have. So if you have, like we did on election day in like 2016, uh, like, 12% undecided, then it's going to be a much more volatile electorate and a lot harder to, put, uh, to predict on the nose. I see people shit on pollsters for being off four points, being off eight points without even reflecting on the margin of error. Comparative margin of error is something I plan to get tattooed on me. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, it's always really like easy to forget that there's like people who are behind these polls and it's like, you know, you see people on election Twitter just being like, God, the polling was so awful in November. And it's like, you know, they did their best. <laughs> I think we all just did our best. We didn't, we, I don't think anybody could have seen, you know, how bad November was coming. I mean, so I think it depends on the state that you're talking about. Um, you know, people, and certain firms get really good at polling a state. That's why right before the runoff, people kept repeating, like, the polls are really decent in Georgia. Like, I think we have a good read on this. Um, and so I think, like, without practice, like, without that kind of specialization of just polling within a state, like, I think every state should have an Ant Seltzer. You could only hope. <laughs> One day. Yeah. So that's that's all great and good. We just learned a little bit more about polling. Is there, I'm not really sure, is there anything else that you'd ever want to work in in politics? Um, that's a good question. I mean, like, I have worked in field, I have worked in data, I have worked in fundraising, RIP. I've been a, <laughs> I've been a campaign manager and like, honestly, the place where I find the most joy 
is opinion research. Yeah. So, so do you think, yeah, that's like what you'll stick with probably? Uh, as long as I keep, keep getting to make charts, you know, charts make me, happy. <laughs> make me pretty happy. Like nice graph, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I always wish I was more of a numbers person, but that's why we have you. I honestly wasn't a numbers person like in high school at all. Uh, it, math was my worst subject. And then I took Cal 2. Uh, I started as a biochem major. I took Cal 2 and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It made sense to me. Uh, and so I changed my major. Oh, wow. What, what university did you go to again? I went to a very small Catholic school in uh, Louisville called Bellarmine, which is named after the guy that killed Galileo. But they're sorry oh. about it. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> That's nice. I don't got nothing. <laughs> I am also like blanking. I don't know why. You're just such an interesting person. You've already told us everything. <laughs> I'm an open book. Like what you see is what you get. <laughs> Honestly. Um, no, Claire, every time I think of you and your Twitter, I think of um, that one tweet that you made about Fetterman where you were like why doesn't he just eat the, <laughs> the entire Pennsylvania legislature <laughs> it's like I yeah, think that's like my that, favorite well, that, killer clear moment that's a Futurama quote so I can't actually take credit uh, especially since like one of the writers from Futurama follows me uh, <laughs> oh no no I was gonna give you complete credit for it because I had no clue <laughs> no it's it's Lur, the ruler of Omicron Percy I ate, and he's watching friends and he says, I don't understand why Ross, the largest of the friends, does not simply eat the other. Yeah, that would really make sense. <laughs> um, I know you did an interview with my friend Adam the other day. Um, I've been listening to a bit of it. You guys go quite a bit into into bees. Do you want to talk a little bit about that here? I mean I I don't really want to be known as the B-girl. It's just kind of been at the back of my mind. I would like to be sort of a farmer, uh, but like I want to have honeybees. It, it seems like a nice thing to do. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about them. I have seen beehives. I've been stung by bees. I hold no grudges, obviously. I want to give them homes. Uh, but, you know, I just imagine forming a defensive perimeter around my house and then solving all of my Christmas present problems. Oh my gosh, I've actually never been stung by a bee, which is like, I think one of my biggest fears just because it's so, I mean, it's like so random, right? Like, what would you do? Like, you're just at a park and you get stung by a bee and then you have to drive home all miserable. I don't know. That just seems like one of my biggest fears. It's just like getting a spider bite, like it hurts, but you should, you should go out and find a bee and get stung because like I think <laughs> five, five to seven percent of the, of the population is like deadly or like somewhat deadly allergic to bees and that ain't zero and you never know until like you get stung. Honestly, that could be my case because I'm not allergic to like anything else and I think that's, I've just gotten too lucky so and that's just not my brand. So I may be one of the people deadly allergic to bees, but I guess we'll never know. <laughs> I reached my hand to, into a bush once and then I got stung by a bee on my arm. I was like six, so. Jesse, why would you do that? 
I know. I think I was trying to get a ball or something. That yeah, certified Jesse moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Claire. So you're like one of the iconic like election Twitter meme people, I would say. Do you have any favorite like other election Twitter meme people? Okay. There's there's some <laughs> accounts that I see and I'm like, man, that is a that is a really good shit post. <laughs> like as a connoisseur of shit posts, that is a good one. I think I have to like I have to praise Callahan Riley. I mean, he's he's an icon. He's my hero. Like the most high quality, high effort shit post. I don't know if you've seen it, but he made this giant eclipse map that breaks down election data by eclipse paths for some reason. Um, he made a horrifying map that just fills the states with the governor's eyes, uh, which haunts my dreams. Uh, so yeah, like I love Callahan Riley for a beautiful high effort shit post. Yes, he's a king. Love him. I found that Bigfoot map. Yeah, I didn't find it, but I saw that in the group chat. That was that was, that was art. <sighs> the Bigfoot map is beautiful. I've been trying to get him to make one that takes the governor's heights and sizes their states relative to their height. Uh. But like the forensic data on that's kind of hard to find. Like it's kind of not publicly out there how tall governor is. That'd be really just, interesting to see. You should just shoot them an email and ask how tall they are. <laughs> Some poor staffer just like having to read that. <laughs> <laughs> Grab the tape measure. You know, that's there's a guy on TikTok that will like, yeah, there's a guy on TikTok that will like calculate your height, like using math from a photo. I think he uses like a ring finger and like a couple other things for comparison, but I, you can do it. It's just some like serious photo forensics. Oh, I wonder yeah, if you I... commission him to do that. <laughs> Honestly, you could like make them all stand, find pictures of them all standing next to Joe Biden and then just kind of get there. That's, yeah, that would be an interesting project. I've seen people do that with, like, people that they meet on, like, Tinder, and they're, like, <laughs> comparing them to, like, a Coke bottle, and they're, like, this person's lying about his height. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm 5'9", uh, so I'm taller than 97% of women, I think, last I checked, uh, and 47% of men. So, you know, just... RIP to the shorter people must have hard <laughs> and closer to hell. Go you. She's flexing. <laughs> Chrissy, you're 6'4". That's, yeah, you're right. You're right. I forgot about that. <laughs> That's definitely my, definitely how tall I am. And Beto is like 7'5 by that logic. <laughs> I'm going to do photo forensics on Chrissy. We'll find out the real height. <laughs> <laughs> when you find I... out, it's like 6'5". I definitely took a semester of geometry at some point. I didn't. Uh, so we'll be able to do this. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny that you're like talking about all these math classes that you've taken, but I've, I think I've, I've taken like one and then like political stats. Um, so most of my math degree, like, I mean, I tell people that I use, I draw like on a day-to-day -day basis more on my experience on campaigns than I do on my entire math education. Uh, and so like, I'll, 
when I got upper, like into the upper level courses of my major, I just went for all of the, you know, not hard numbers math. <laughs> so pretty much anything where like any number is N or N plus one. So, you know, it's even or odd and like a lot of proofs and a lot of theory uh, because I'm, you know, honestly not interested in like physical calculus. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't know how you did that though. Like I am just so, like I said, I'm just not a numbers person. And when I say I'm not a numbers person, I mean like I am not a numbers person. Like I think I had to have somebody from election Twitter help me with my political stats homework like multiple times <laughs> last semester. Um, and he just like knew it just because he knew it. And I was like, you do this for fun. <laughs> I was like, I just want to do like digital stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Claire. Um, we're about to lose the Zoom because we didn't pay for Zoom premium. So thanks for joining us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe we're hitting time. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you for have uh, for being here and for just being amazing. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye, guys. <laughs>